Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. At the end of the 19th century, the U.S. went to war with Spain and Cuba and Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines. Historian Thomas Patterson begged scholars in 1998, 100 years after the war, to stop calling it the Spanish-American War because Filipinos, Puerto Ricans, Chamorros, and Cubans also fought to liberate their nations from colonialism. Now, we know how the war ends. The United States replaced Spain as the colonizer, and many of the nationalist revolutions that began before the U.S. got involved continued unabated, only against a new imperial power. One of the things that I promised to do with this podcast is that we should look at the United States in the world. And today's show is about the Filipino Revolution, and I believe it serves this purpose. It goes to show how transnational history can help us understand the global past. For the United States, the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War represent an imperial moment, the high-water mark of overseas colonialism. Yet from the Filipino perspective, the revolution belongs to a long history of national and regional conflict that shaped identities and politics. The Philippine Revolution is as much a story about regional ideas of race as it is about the Philippine idea of nation, or about Western ideas of capitalism, or even Asian ideas of land and place. Americans have often thought of the Gilded Age and the colonization that happened in this period in racial terms and racial hierarchies, with white Anglo-Saxon people atop an evolutionary pyramid. Americans also conceived of anti-imperialism as a Western idea, and the rise of American world power status as the promise of democracy. But if we shift our perspective from American voices and American ideas of race and pivot to the Philippine Revolution as a formative moment within Asia, outside of Spanish or American colonization, we see a very different picture. Filipinos were not only fighting for their independence, they had constructed racial narratives of their own and conceived of their struggles as part of a wider Asian revolution. If we take the 1880s as the starting point of Filipino resistance to Spanish rule, we can see how it belonged to an era of anti-colonialism, decolonization, and resistance. And here are just a few events that coincided with the Philippine Revolution that we, we don't often associate with American intervention in the region. The first is the Meiji Restoration in, J in Japan, which made Japan an imperial power in Korea and Taiwan. And after the Sino-Japanese War, Japan had economic control over many parts of Manchuria. The French conquest of Indochina was completed by 1897. The Dutch had conquered Indonesia. The British federated Malaysia and conquered Burma. Germany's decision to seek territories in the Far East had also complicated matters. And in the 1890s, the Boxer Rebellion in China was one of open revolt against foreign colonization. In short, the Far East or Southeast Asia, however we choose to geographically define the area, was the most turbulent part of the world in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. To help us make sense of it and the centrality of the Philippines to the region, I'm joined by Nicole Kungian Avoitis, who is a research fellow at the University of Cambridge and the executive director of the Toynbee Prize Foundation. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. Well, I wanted to start off with um, a little bit of background for listeners, because I think this book is challenging us in so many ways to think about the Philippines is the center of the universe in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, which is a good thing. I think it's a really good thing. Um, but for listeners who only know about the Philippine Revolution from an American or a, a Eurocentric perspective, 
Could you explain the revolution's roots in the 1870s, the ideas that fueled it and how it came to define the nation by the 20th century? Yes, absolutely. So the propaganda movement began in 1875 and ended in 1895 and grew out of a loose set of independent critiques of the Philippine colonial condition by various ilustrados, which is the term for the educated elite, um, notably against the abuses of the Catholic friars under um, the Spanish empire. And it also grew out of the Cavite incident of 1872, which was an unsuccessful mutiny of soldiers and laborers who joined them, resulting in the execution of many of the participants and suspected sympathizers, and represented the most important moment of political disillusionment with Mother Spain. Um, this incident also delineated the end of the brief moment of Spanish liberalism that had visited the islands and the reactionary regime that succeeded inflamed and further politicized the upwardly mobile ilustrados who had increasing economic power as the colony opened up to the global investment and trade um, in the 19th century that came to the islands and had the means, these ilustrados had the means both to be educated and live abroad as well as in the capital of Manila. Uh, the mouthpiece of the propaganda movement was the fortnightly newspaper La Solidaridad, which sought to develop a social consciousness that could build national community. There was no lingua franca on the islands, nor had there ever been. Um, despite wide successful Catholicization, the archipelago remained divided ethnolinguistically, with only the provincial elite beginning to travel to and reside in Manila and abroad in Europe together at the end of the 19th century, where they could begin to meet as Filipinos rather than as Cebuano and Ilocanos today, um, and that way to form national bonds and awareness. The most important propaganda movement publication other than La Solidaridad was the future national hero Jose Rizal's searing 1887 critique of Spanish colonial rule called No Limitangere. Uh, Rizal was a central member of the reformist propaganda movement and was eventually executed by the Spanish in 1896 on the charges of rebellion, sedition, and subversion following the publication of Nolimitangere and its sequel, and the outbreak in 1896 of the Philippine Revolution that the novels had helped in part to inspire. Um, the propaganda movement failed, and José Rizal, among others, realized that the true battlefield was in Asia rather than Europe. Um, at home, political agitation was increasing, and the Katipunan, a secret society started by Andres Bonifacio, began the Philippine Revolution um, in 1896. Um, the first Philippine Republic, which was also known as the Malolos Republic, was the government that the Philippine Revolution erected following the declaration of Philippine independence by General Emilio Aguinaldo in 1898. Um, Aguinaldo was elected the first president of the Republic with Apolinario Mabini as the first president of the cabinet. Um, and this all took place straddling the Spanish-American War. So whereas the re revolution began by fighting the Spanish, it ended unsuccessfully as the archipelago was taken over by its new colonial power, the US, which the revolution continued to fight, training with Japanese army officers and collaborating with Japanese pan-Asianists and Chinese Republicans, among other Asian political activists, thinkers, and revolutionaries. That is such a wonderful summary, succinct, and and because uh, there's so much going on, obviously, between the propaganda movement, the then the the Katipunan, and then, then later on the actual revolution itself. Um, your book explains how Filipinas draw intellectual inspiration from just about everywhere, uh, from the West, from Asia, locally. Can you tell us a little bit about how all of these ideas come together? Because you mentioned some of the outcomes, but how do some of the ideas that form the revolution come together? Um, I, I guess I'll start by saying that, um, you know, in international history and imperial history, but especially in Asian history, this turn of the century, 20th century moment um, is a crucial turning point and a global moment. Um, and this important global century, um, global turn of the uh, turn of the century moment is too often apprehended in Asian historiography through a bilateral framework, privileging relations with the West. So, you know, important studies of France and Vietnam on one hand, and of the US and the Philippine Revolution um, on the other. And the long Philippine Revolution of 1896 to 19 1905 that I study took place against a backdrop of imperial incorporation and local resistance that was truly region-wide across all of Southeast Asia, as well as the emergence of Japan as a non-Western imperial power after the Meiji Restoration. Um, but the important transnational and regional historical setting has barely been incorporated into the locally and Western-oriented historiography of the Philippine Revolution. 
Um, and the historical literature treats the Philippine Revolution as if it happened in a completely different corner of the world entirely, without reference to this transnational regional setting or to Asia at all. Um, and my ongoing focus on the Asian context of Philippine history runs counter to the traditional assumption of the literature, um, the assumption that the Filipino self-image is historically non-Asian, seeing itself as belonging to the Western Hemisphere. Um, and early post-war and Cold War Southeast Asian studies actually uh, reinforced that kind of exclusion of the Philippines from studies of Southeast Asia. Um, meanwhile, the internationalization of the Philippine Revolution's historiography has generally occurred along imperial lines, analyzing it with or against the former Western imperial powers or the former colonies of Spain and the US, such as Puerto Rico. Um, and my research excavates the Philippine nation's cosmopolitan and transnational Asian intellectual moorings in order to reconnect Philippine history to that of Southeast and East Asia from which it has been historiographically separated. So while there were very important European and local indigenous structures of thought and influence providing inspiration, these have long, long been covered in the um, literature. And what my work has sought to do is to recover the crucial Asian connections, trans transnational political collaboration, and Asianist thought deeply foundational to both the Philippine revolution and the Philippine nation that have been there all along. Uh, but have been missed due to the limits of, um, quite frankly, imperial, nationalist, or Eurocentric lenses. Um, I focus on the inspiration from the Meiji Restoration and the Asian modernity of the rising global power of Japan, as well as constructions of Malayness and the Malay race and of universal civilization into which the Philippines inserts itself through a geographical construction of Asia, resting on an ancient Chinese, uh, ancient Chinese um, achievement within an understanding of universal um, civilization and universal history. So I, that's a little bit hard to unpack. So I think I would say that um, in, in some, um, I argue that though incipient, the early Filipino Asianism of the turn of the 20th century was crucial to the Philippine propaganda movement's political argumentation against Spain, to the concept of the Filipino nation that the Ilustrados were then constructing, and to the political mobilization and organizing of the Katipunan and the First Philippine Republic. Um, further, the revolutionary First Philippine Republic's foreign coll collaboration um, within Asia represents the first instance of fellow Pan-Asianists lending material aid toward anti-colonial revolution against a Western power rather than the overthrow of a domestic dynasty and harnessing transnational Pan-Asian networks of support, activism, and association toward doing so. The Filipino propagandists first constructed a classical Asia to which they belonged then the Malay race and its historical environment, and finally a generalized Philippines that also rested on the prior two geographies. Um, the intellectual armature and grounds of both the Philippine nation and the Philippine revolution rested then on these three geographies. This history has therefore embedded Asia, the Malay race, and cosmopolitan Asianism into the foundation of the Filipino nation in a way that has not been acknowledged. And it connects this foundation of Philippine history to Southeast Asian and East Asian history which we often ignore through our more imperial um, studies of this, of this, um, this period. Um, next, I'll just say that the Filipino Asianists and the Philippine revolutionaries saw themselves genuinely as leading the charge toward an anti-colonial future within colonized Asia, with the Philippines leading brethren Malay nations toward that shared vision and working as, as, alongside the modern leader of Japan. Because of the racialized social Darwinist frame through which they interpreted the international sphere, they believed nationalism and racialized internationalism to be existentially and pragmatically entangled. And the same obtained for the Vietnamese scholar gentry in the same period. Um, and this is a point of interest as we investigate the history of the rise of the nation state as the legitimate political form um, in the 20th century and in Asia. I mean, for me, when I was reading the book, I just saw it as a, as a massive Venn diagram in the way you're describing place overlapping with ideas and how this was all reshaped. And for me, the real game changer in how you conceive um, the, the, the argument in the book conceives Filipino nationhood is this idea of a melee race at, of which the Filipinos are a part of. Because my view of social Darwinism, a lot of what I've read about the Filipinos has come from, you know, American-centric or Eurocentric views. And social Darwinism is often represented by Europeans, whether it's Darwin himself or Herbert Spencer or Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. I mean, it's very white. And so I wonder how Asian intellectuals constructed social Darwinism from their region, how that developed. 
Um, so at the end of the 19th century, non-Western elites encounter with European exceptionalist narratives and the racial barriers that circumscribe the West's application and understanding of enlightenment ideals, crucially delegitimize the Eurocentric world order. And this impelled Japanese intellectuals to construct a more inclusive concept of global civilization, including alternative discourses of civilization and race. Um, and from these debates emerged a mirror vision of international order of pan-Asian solidarity in opposition to Western imperialism. This is the topic of Jamil Aydin's wonderful book, The Politics of Anti-Westernism, which um, I drew a lot of inspiration from. Um, and turn of the 20th century, Southeast Asian engagement with the pan-Asian discourse emanating from Japan and China envisioned transnational anti-colonial political possibilities, advocating Asian solidarity under the aid of Japan against the encroachments of Western imperialism, internalizing a loose belief in a vague evolutionary social Darwinism. By this, I refer to a social Darwinist understanding of the survival of the fittest between nations rather than within a single nation as it was originally theorized in the West. Thinkers such as Phan Boi Chao in Vietnam and Mariano Ponce in the Philippines emphasize Peter Kropotkin's studies on the role of mutual help within species to survive the harshness of nature. Um, this alongside what they interpreted as the frankly racial aspect to Western imperialism led them naturally to think racially about their political futures, prospects and alliances. And Phan Boi Chao um, wrote in his letter from abroad, written in blood as it's come to be known, quote, in this age, when strong powers are competing against each other and the world is engaged in a struggle for survival, we would be a loser unless we absorb civilization from abroad, acquire sympathy from a strong neighbor and pit our small nation against a big enemy, end quote. And Chao writes in his autobiography that his scholar gentry contemporary, Nguyen Du Lao explained to him that given the present circumstances of the world powers, no country except one of the same culture and same race would agree to help us. So that's kind of the way, I guess, the framework that they're working within. Um, but I want to say also that statements of difference uh, between East and West obtained not only as intellectual planks supporting Western imperialism and racism, as you say, um, but also then positively and defensively among the Filipinos and the Vietnamese as the foundations for Asia's unique role within a shared universal history of civilization and as the foundations for a narrower existential Asian solidarity strategy within a social Darwinist framework. Um, and so in this way, discourses of race and constructions of Asia were employed defensively as part of a real geopolitical strategy, but also positively as part of anti-colonial nationalism's political imagining or world making. Um, I can give you more specific examples if you'd like to see how this um, sort of happened in motion for the Filipinos. I'd love to hear your examples. And I'd also love to ask you about an example from 1904, 1905 which is further along in your story, but the, the Japanese victory or quasi-victory over the Russians in, in that war is just, you know, the, the sort of the exclamation point on decades of advancement of Japanese culture, military, and economic prowess. I mean, that was one example that jumped out to me. Did you have other ones that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, so I think the ones that are lesser known are, for example, um, José Rizal's Paris-based organization Indios Bravos agreed on a secret agenda of liberating first the Philippines, then Borneo, Indonesia, and then Malaya. And facing Spanish persecution, Rizal spent a week in 1892 traveling through Sandakan, Borneo, and present-day Malaysia to seek a land grant from the British government to establish a Filipino colony at home amongst her purported racial brothers. Um, and, um, you know, uh, there, are other, there are other examples like into the Philippine-American war phase. So Gregorio Aguilera and other illustrados edit um, Columnas Volantes de la Federación Malaya beginning in 1899, which aimed to serve as an organ for the Filipi Filipino people marching with and leading the Malayan people as a single federation. Um, Apolinario Mabini publishes an important article in 18, 1899 in which he declares that the revolution had, quote, as its sole objective and final goal, the aspiration to maintain alive and bright in Oceania, the torch of liberty and civilization, so that illuminating the gloomy night in which today the Malay race lies debased and degraded, the revolution will show the road to its social emancipation, end quote. Um, and, you know, this is much earlier on, the 1904 uh, to 1905, which is what we usually train our eyes towards, but actually the, um, the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 to 1895 
was enormous in terms of um, impact and influence in the Philippines and Vietnam specifically. And we often compare um, Sino-Japanese and the Russo-Japanese because by the time of the Russo-Japanese war, there's a bit more disillusionment um, in, uh, in the Philippines and Vietnam as Japan starts to act a little less like the future Asian savior and a little more like the Western imperial powers. Um, and indeed, um, signs a treaty with France and with Britain and then extradites the Vietnamese scholarly who had come to Japan to sort of learn in the heart of this Pan-Asian, um, of the Pan-Asian discourse um, directly from the Japanese. And so there's a moment of disillusionment there and it's from there on um, that um, though you have this example of the rising modernity of Japan and one of the things that they always note is that it's an Asian modernity and uh, there are Filipino commentators who say that you know, they've modernized on the outside, but on the inside, they preserve their native Asian culture. And for the existential struggles in Vietnam and, and in the rest of colonized Southeast Asia, this is a really, um, a really attractive option and, and, and a, a, a spot of bright hope. Um, but as Japan becomes increasingly imperial, um, there's search for either trying to um, restore Japan to its former emancipatory, supposedly emancipatory role, or finding the next savior of, um, or the true savior of Asia. It does seem to me like there is a parallel there between Pan-Americanism in the earlier 19th century, where the U.S. sort of sheds those vestiges of being a great liberator and supporter of Pan-American republics, and, and Japan does the same thing, really, by the beginning of the 20th century. I mean, you, you cast the political geographies of the Far East as a Sino-Japanese core contrasted by peripheral areas of Southeast Asia. To what extent do you see the 20th century as a discourse between these core and peripheral areas? In terms of the 20th century, um, I don't want to step too outside <laughs> on my remit yet. Um, it, with, with regard to my book, um, one of the interventions I'm trying to make um, is in the historiography of Pan-Asianism, uh, where the existing literature attends to the successive failures to transnationalize the ideology of Pan-Asianism within the cynic world, highlighting Japanese and Chinese rivalry and the failure to extend Pan-Asianism to Korea, but ignores the Pan-Asianism of the non-cynic periphery. Um, and the revolutionary First Philippine Republic's foreign collaboration, I think is, and I argue, is the, the first instance of fellow Pan-Asianists lending material aid toward anti-colonial revolution and should be recognized as such. And the material dimension is crucial to understanding the Pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery and to incorporating the periphery into this history. And so too is the affective dimension in which fantasies, imagination, and a certain emotionality form much of the periphery's engagement with the model of Meiji era Japan and Asian solidarity. Um, and my book argues that um, for the importance of both dimensions as lenses through which the pan-Asianism of the periphery can be recognized and made legible to the workings of the center. Um, and this is important because most of the literature on pan-Asianism discounts the pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery as true pan-Asianism because of the interpretation that it is insufficiently transnational or pure. Um, they charge this because the periphery's nationalism, for which purpose they adopted, if not instrumentalized, pan-Asianism. Um, however, I argue that for the colonized periphery, no strategy could be purely transnational because of the localized nature of everyday colonial oppression. Their immediate and most vital fight was local and national. However, they also understood that any victory won in narrowly national terms would always be tenuous or incomplete because of what they interpreted to be the transnational racial dimension to Western colonialism, as well as their social Darwinist framework for understanding the international sphere uh, within which their anti-colonial nationalism was situated. Um, therefore, for the anti-colonial nationalists, the two sides of the coins, nationalism and anti-colonialism required operating both levels at once. And I think we need to take the pan-Asianism of the colonized periphery seriously by admitting this difference. Um, and I think there are many ways in which global history of the 20th century has had to adapt um, some of our source bases, some of our methodologies in order to bring the periphery and the, and the core or the center um, into conversation with one another and make them legible. Um, and one of the things uh, I, I, I I recently read Adam Getachew's wonderful book on world making after empire and you know ways in which you can see that mid 20th to end 20th century history within what is now the global south as as true world making. 
I mean, there's been a debate on Twitter about the role that historians have to play in telling these stories as well and why we need language. And your book strikes me as, you know, one of those stories. I mean, why we need language skills to better understand the transnational and international dimensions of of uh, of internet of global relations. Um, I, I I wanted to kind of come back to some some practical questions about um, how place dictated the revolution and and the ideas of nationhood. Um, Aguinaldo is in Hong Kong before he returns to the Philippines in 1899, and I wondered how much that kind of domicile in Hong Kong and a, a British colony, but also a, 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 a part of the Sino core. Uh, affected Aguinaldo's thinking. Yeah, so Aguinaldo's an interesting, um, interesting figure within the um, evolution of the use of concepts of race within the propaganda movement and Philippine Revolution, because um, he straddles um, a bit. So he starts out um, inheriting a kind of revolution that. Um, uses race very in, ter in term um, in order to mobilize. So Andres Bonifacio uses race and specifically um, a white kind of racial enemy in order to mobilize Filipinos as Filipinos um, and especially Tagalogs as Tagalogs. But um, Aguinaldo moves that um, from being more Tagalog to being more Filipino and a little bit more national. Um, however, once he's sort of on the back foot and he um, is on the run a little bit and has uh, is in the it begins to see his first sort of defeats. Um, he has to start speaking outward again, out um, more internationally, and so his use of race becomes a little bit more inclusive. And he starts to say that who whosoever supports the Filipino cause is Filipino, including um, white Spaniards who may fight amongst us. So there's a little bit of strategizing that goes between who, to whom is he speaking? Um, and um, uh, in terms of his location in Hong Kong, it's not just Aguinaldo, but actually lots of Filipino thinkers um, and political activists are jumping between this sort of, um, this geography of political Asianist subversion that takes place under and between um, different empires that abut one another. And it's because of this, sort of abutting that you can have spaces and pockets of relative freedom compared to one, one another. So for the Filipinos, Hong Kong is a, is a space that lacks a certain amount of censorship and where they can meet covertly um, with, uh, with a little bit more freedom. Um, Japan becomes a place um, that um, the Spanish um, religious orders and colonial officials become very suspicious of that whenever they see a Filipino um, going to Yokohama, they are a little bit suspicious of why would this Filipino be going to Yokohama? And the place itself of Yokohama starts to bear this threat. And it's encanted within the archives in Spain with at the end of the 19th century with this sort of ring of threat. And it's almost like a rhythm within the archives. It comes up over and over and over and over again. Yokohama, Yokohama, Yokohama. Actually in Hong Kong, Yokohama actually doing this. Um, and so there's this, you see this geography of political subversion under the cover of the different imperial powers abutting one another that really um, allows for um, some of this Asianist transnational um, collaboration, but also imagining. That, that's a really compelling, I think, reason why we have to study this in, in an Asian, you know, fr from, from a broader geographical perspective and center it in Asia. I mean, I, I had a question as well about anti-imperialism. I've written a little bit about anti-imperialism, but very much from the Western perspective, although there are people that um, travel to the US to promote Filipino independence, um, a, a number of delegations actually over the years. How do the ideas of race begin to disrupt or galvanize perhaps anti-imperialist activism amongst a really diverse population that is the Philippines, right? I mean, is the Malay identity shared in places like Mindanao among Muslim Filipinas or is, how does it take root in different places? Yeah. So I would say, I, I would like to caveat and say that, you know, I, I think you alluded to this in a prior question and I, and I forgot to answer it. Um, I don't know that at this point, how national and um, you can say that this vision truly is. I think that you have different visions of the national 
Um, and there are moments of mass participation within the revolution, but it is a really diverse, historically state-averse, decentralized archipelago. So I want to caveat um, you know, my answers by acknowledging that. And I do acknowledge that the nation and nation state in the frameworks that I describe it, which is these, these sort of transnational pan-Asian networks is an elite project um, and is one that hinges on uh, mobility, linguistic access, travel, but they're not the only ones who think that way. There's a, there's a way you could have told the story that I'm telling from a completely different register. So from the perspective of you know, the, the Muslim Mindanao or the sailors who had long plowed all of these seas in the Sulu zone, um, even under the Spanish and didn't really see much difference for the presence of the Spanish necessarily. And so, and also my book opens with, um, you know, discussions of the sort of Visayan rural imaginings of the international. So for even those who don't travel, who are in the hinterland of the empire, they still have a concept of the international. Um, and it, I think it shows to the international setting in which ideas of social regeneration in the Philippines were occurring at this point. So while I am talking about a privileged elite set of thinkers who end up becoming foundational, um, to the Philippine nation and the Philippine nation state, um, there is another side to this history, which I, I did not cover, but which you could very easily cover. And I hope that someone does. Absolutely. And, and, and all the various islands, like, you know, you mentioned, and, and, and some of that, I mean, I think the sense of anti-imperialism uh, brewing your, at certain times is there. I mean, we, we have captured that whether we've captured the intellectual wellspring of the, 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 the how people created racial identities or ideas of nationhood, maybe that's not been done yet. But I think what your book beautifully does is it takes that illustrato class um, and it, you know, it uses people like, you know, Jose Rizal or, or journalist Marcelo Del Pilar, who I know I'm doing a massive disservice by calling a journalist. These <laughs> people are, you know, they are uh, amazing, multi-talented individuals. Um, but can you tell us a little bit more about these illustrados that are at the core of your work? Why do they matter for the revolution? And how does class factor into the Philippine revolution? Yeah, so I think that, um, uh, I guess one, one thing I, I, should, I should first say is that um, in Spanish, the term ilustrado means enlightened or learned and refers to the educated. And ilustrado is a loose term that has been used with varying dimensions and nuances over time as have many of our other terms that have a basis in class, which itself can be very slippery if you try to fix definitions over time. And in my book and in my research more generally, I use it to refer to the educated elite whose ideas shaped the Philippine revolution and the first Philippine Republic. And this inclusion of impact and historical involvement in my criteria allows me to refer more to specific groups of individuals in time, rather than generalizing about class and education and their interrelations more broadly, which is what happens when you try to use illustrator to denote a demographic more generally uh, to your question. So the end of the 19th century saw a dramatic reduction in the commercial, intellectual, and religious isolation of, um, of the colony of Filipinas. Um, this included the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, the intensification of international commerce through Filipinas, the brief Republic of Spain from 1873 to 1874, and the flourishing of Spanish liberalism and the institution of local educational and municipal reforms um, inspired by the ideals of the French Revolution, um, guaranteeing freedom of press and of association. Um, and this began to raise the political expectations of the emerging Manilenial middle class and native clergy. Yet it was the Principalia, who were the traditional native elites through whom the Spanish colonizers affected governance at the local level that gained the most from the 19th century reforms. Yet the economic developments of the mid to the late 19th century had caused a new mestizo class to ascend. And the propaganda movement um, that this group of mestizo illustrados um, would construct is what represents a transition from the Principalia's aristocratic, colonial, and elitist position to the Mestizo Illustrado economic class's more national role. Um, and while the illustrators who led the propaganda movement were members of the larger class of educated elite and still ultimately held a reformist assimilationist objective like the Principalia, their political position differed from that associated with the Principalia, and they were able to construct the foundations upon which the Philippine Revolution later emerged. 
Um, and if you were to follow, I guess, theorizations by Benedict Anderson, et cetera, this, the role of the Creole um, in these kinds of national imaginings um, is observed elsewhere um, in global history. And it's part of this frustration of rising economic power without a uh, concomitant political and social power. Um, and so it's that frustration that I think engenders um, this, the, the reform movement. In one chapter, you explore Vietnamese revolutionaries alongside Filipino revolutionaries. What does the comparison of that analysis show? So though it centers on the Filipinos, my book opens a comparison to the contemporaneous Vietnamese scholar gentry while also drawing transnational links to Japan and China and ending with a comparison across Southeast Asia. Um, Asia in general, in, in quotation marks, was the framework in which many nationalisms consciously situated themselves in defense against a hegemonic Western worldview and totalizing hierarchical European understandings of race and civilization, whether um, that Western hegemony was an aspiration or a reality. Um, and that then became my frame to unify and thread the discrepant registers I was dealing with focusing on constructions of Asia brought certain aspects of civilization, of race, and of nationalism to the fore while setting aside others. And it gave me a broader frame through which to compare the Philippine case to parallel cases, such as that of Vietnam and Japan most centrally, but also at other times with Korea, China, and the Malay world. Um, and I think one of the most interesting things that the comparison to Vietnam brings out is the role of affect. So Vietnam is an interesting case um, in this kind of um, study of peripheral Southeast Asian Pan-Asianism, because it's like a midway stepping stone between Southeast and East Asia. So it's a more natural extension of Pan-Asianism from the viewpoint of Japan. Taken together, however, we see how the Japanese interactions with Filipinos and Vietnamese, among others, including the Siamese and even Indians, uh, work to expand the Japanese's definition of Asia outward beyond the cynic world. Uh, we see Asia being elaborated and co-created and more and a more politicized version and definition of Asia um, eventually obtaining by the 20th century through the work of these peripheral um, Southeast Asians. So I think that's an interesting um, thing that taking them together brings out. And also the role of affect because um, there's a more natural sort of, um, I think we quoted before, you know, same culture, same race kind of definition to um, the Asian race from the Vietnamese perspective. They, they're still from within that same cynic worldview. And once you compare what happens there um, with, the, uh, with um, Japan and the Philippines and that kind of interaction, you see in both, but especially in the latter, the role of affect in bridging kind of cultural gaps as you're trying to stitch together this new definition of Asia, this new, more expansive, more politicized and potentially universal uh, proposition of what Asia is. Um, and so that's where I think the lens of affect becomes really interesting. So that that chapter, when I read it, was was just, it brought everything together for me because I think you, you, you even when you talk about this, everything starts with a caveat. Let me just deconstruct this for you first, and then I'm going to stitch it all back together. And by the end of it, I just think there's such a better understanding of how race actually works, how identity comes together, how disparate communities fundamentally react, and I mean react to one another, um, it's, this is the genius of the book for me about, you know, taking it all apart and putting it all back together again. From that question, what I really, or comment, what I really want to ask is, do you think the Philippine Revolution, and I, I might know the answer to this already, but do you think the Philippine Revolution has implications beyond Asia? Um, I once posited in a book that American anti-imperialism was an international discourse it had implications for South African boards. It had implications for Congo reform movements, Irish liberation, among other places. Do you think the Philippine Revolution inspires any imperialist movements elsewhere or identity and racial discourses elsewhere? Yeah, so the, I have two, um, two answers to that question. First is, I think the, the implications beyond Asia. Then after that, we can go to um, thinking about um, the role of the Philippine Revolution within Southeast Asia. Um, I think the Philippine Revolution has global importance because it brings the Asian and global South Age of Revolutions into conversation with the global and Western frameworks of the Age of Revolutions. So our traditional Atlantic framing of the Age of Revolutions begins traditionally in the 18th century and stretching into the early 19th century. And this framing allows for a Western account of diffusion of modernity and the role of revolution within political modernity to encapsulate Europe and the Americas, including the wave of Latin American Creole revolutions. 
From there, our next age of evolution jumps to the 20th century, skipping over to the radical modernism of Marxism and to the rise of the nation state as a locus of political legitimacy with mid 20th century anti-colonialism and decolonization and a duly globalized account of the Philippine revolution in place of merely internationalized colony metropole and Spanish American war accounts that dominate the historiography stands to connect these two ages of revolutions, connecting the Atlantic and global South ages in provocative and refreshing ways with import for world history more broadly. And um, further, there's what the Philippine revolution adds to our history of modern Asia and of the rise of the nation state more generally. Um, you know, though in my approach to the revolution and to Philippine and Asian history more generally, I, I wanted to turn to East-East relations and to contact between peripheries. Um, I'm not trying to reorient, right, just from West to East um, or to recover something internal. I just, I, I want to recover wider ranges of structures of thought, Eastern, Western, Imperial, anti-colonial, peripheral core involved in Filipino conceptualizations of the political of modernity and of what I discovered was their universal human history of civilization and how they carved and constructed their national places within those conceptualizations. And in the process of doing so, I think we gain insight into the longer ongoing histories of the construction and stitching together of modern Asia, as well as the 20th century history of the rise of the nation state as the legitimate political form. And I think there's a lot more work to be done on this. Returning to your question about Southeast Asia, um, there are many ways in which um, the Philippine revolution had impact. Um, and um, the Philippine revolution turned, to be, turned out to be a, a turning point in Southeast Asia rather than simply failing to maintain a traditional state as in Vietnam and Burma, or largely succeeding in maintaining one as in Cambodia and Thailand, it was briefly successful in establishing the first Philippine Republic, a modern secular native Republic in Asia. And the revolution had wide reverberations in Southeast Asia. And we have politicians as late as the Indonesian president Sukarno referencing Jose Rizal and the Philippine revolution as inspirations. It also set a precedent globally in the 20th century as the first modern nationalist Republican uprising of the century preceding the Irish rebellion of 1916. Even today, one frequently meets Malaysians named Rizal after the Filipino hero Jose, who is often referred to as the greatest Malay. Um, in Indonesia, the most famous Rizal is General Tengku Rizal Nordin, who became governor of North Sumatra in 1998 and is noted for reestablishing Malay culture there for the first time following the Indonesian revolution. And in the concluding chapter of my book, I take a brief tour of Southeast Asia to track these reverberations um, but also to show the general shared experience the Southeast Asian nationalist elite had um, of what I call growing up in Japan and what that meant to the region's future post-colonial leaders and what their experiences during World War II were when Japan's role as Asian emancipator took ironic and tragic, even violent turns. Um, the global paradigm shifts of the 20th century repeatedly redrew the planes upon which transnational Asia and its models of regional solidarity could rest. And it's in that sense that the longer history of the place of Asia within the Philippine worldview and self-image and geographies of political affinity and disaffinity gain meaning. And it's a history that includes, for example, the creation of post-colonial Mafilindo, the non-political confederation of the three Malay nation states of Malaysia, the Philippines and Indonesia, undertaken by the three countries in 1963, as well as even some of current Philippine President Duterte's largely unsuccessful attempts to recall such histories as bases to his geopolitical moves. Um, and I want to say also that um, in returning to intra-Asian or intra-global South perspectives at this time, we see the ways in which the creation of Southeast Asia as a coherent region is not only either a byproduct of Western military divisions or a fairly hollow political construct, because the anti-colonial consciousness and transnational pan-Asian thinking and engagement described in my book was a historical force in the creation of Southeast Asia as a self-identified region, for which reason I anachronistically attend to the, the region of Southeast Asia. And I think that is one of the more lasting regional results of the Philippine revolution. And further afield, um, Rebecca Carl argues that for Chinese intellectuals, propagandist and revolutionary Mariano Ponce's writings on the Philippine struggle, quote, first persuasively cast colonialism as a global discursive problem, a characterization that not only facilitated the universalization of the Philippine national experience well beyond its particularities, but one that endured well beyond the duration of the Philippine situation itself. I, I mean, I think one of the things that your book does about setting that Southeast Asian, uh, that, that moniker for the region is impressive because I think whenever a conversation starts about Southeast Asia, the first thing that comes to mind is, well, where is Southeast Asia, right? And 
you can, you know, that's another one of those caveats that you throw in before saying anything about Southeast Asia is that it's a, it's a construct. Your book has particular relevance for how we conceive of the region now as well. I mean, you mentioned Duterte, but there's also the, the prospect of uh, Sino, um, a Japanese rift, and then also Western powers getting involved as well. I mean, can you, can you tell, you know, aspiring PhD students, like what the utility of this framework is, not only for looking back to the past, but bringing it to the present, because one of the things the podcast aims to do is show how historical research has real relevance for what we're grappling with today. Um, and so I wanted to give you an opportunity to say a little bit about how your methodology and approach has real relevance for today. So I think the the, the two two parts to that that question. The first is um, the framework of the region or of Asia, um, and the second is the methodology. I think the first, um, the importance I think, or or the or the potential import for other research is the way in which Asia at, in this time period and later in the twentieth century is like this this blank canvas on which you can project your fantasies and your fears, and it's a way to track a lot of the um, a lot of the shifts, like sort of global paradigm shifts over the 20th century, the ways in which Asia reflects those. Um, so I think that that central concept can be applied across the region. Um, and indeed, at certain points, you know, the definition of Asia um, in the sort of flush of Japanese kind of um, power expands to include all of oppressed, the oppressed non-West, essentially, um, you know, in certain people's definitions, certain thinkers' um, definitions. So I think that, you know, seeing Asia as this blank canvas, I mean, this index of other paradigm shifts is a really interesting way to get into the 20th century and to get into both the intellectual and political history of it. Um, secondly is methodology. Um, I have tried to take a global intellectual historical approach, and this is a new field um, that is just starting to coalesce and emerge. We have only one journal under the name, you know, Global Intellectual History. Um, and I think that it is a methodology um, that is very, very fruitful um, for, for um, scholars today and, and young scholars. Um, there are lots of us who have long looked at you know, intellectual history outside the West <laughs> and recognize that there are people, there are thinkers <laughs> outside the West. And of course, there's an older area studies model that has long looked at canonical non-Western thinkers and civilizations. Um, and then there's a subaltern study school that has also adapted different methodologies in order to recover folk consciousness um, and those whose voices are not as well um, represented within the archives who don't have long tracks, political tracks explaining their thoughts. Um, but unlike those two sort of models, uh, global intellectual history is in the way that I use it, in the way that I understand it, tries to make those, um, those uh, thinkers and thought legible to the existing um, scholarship and intellectual historical tradition. So trying to efface the boundary between the West and non-West, um, subaltern and, and, um, and elite. So I think that that's a really uh, fruitful way to approach um, intellectual history. And I hope that intellectual history in general um, moves in that direction. I think it is, and I think you know your book is is a great example of of that. One of the things that your your book for me does so well is refashion our perspective and make sure that we know that there's things going on outside of the Western perspective, the Eurocentric American perspective. I just wanted to to leave with a question about Aguinaldo as well. I'm kind of fascinated by Aguinaldo a little bit, but. His assertion of independence from Spain came in the form of a, de a declaration, which I, I think in many ways was, you know, attempting to bring the Americans on board to show them in some ways that the Filipino revolution was just like the American revolution, whether it was or it wasn't. Does it change the way that we look at the re revolution as one of race and place? I mean, I don't think it does, but I wondered what you thought about the domestic versus the foreign narrative being sold to Western colonizers in particular. So um, I, I, I want to say too that you know one of the things that my book discusses is the way in which Aguinaldo and I, we mentioned this um, the different audiences that the revolution has right because also the revolution is, establishes the first Philippine Republic and then it's recognized by no <laughs> by no country so um, you know it's all well and good to establish your republic but it needs to it exists within an international framework so there are many audiences here. 
And when um, you speak to the Japanese as potential allies, it's very different from when you speak to, um, you know, MacArthur, right? Um, and um, so the the audience um, the audience changes. And I, I I will say that the Philippine Revolution saw itself as a liberal um, inheritor to um, to the the prior age of revolutions. And when you look at the Malolos Constitution and the way it discusses different countries and different um, constitutional models, it sides with a Western liberal model and actually singles out Japan and China for its abuses against um, the Christian religion and, um, and its representatives. So I think that in general, um, the revolution saw itself um, as an enlightenment inheritor um, and saw itself um, that way because that was its understanding and the, the Filipino revolutionaries and um, intellectuals understanding of what political modernity um, meant. That said, their understanding of modernity also had other strategies um, and other registers, uh, including the Japanese, um, the rising power of Japan, um, its ability to modernize what protected um, indigenous and native customs. Um, and so I think that the, the story is more complicated than the one that we normally have about, um, about the Western um, liberal influence um, on the Philippine revolution. It's like what we were saying before with, with the social Darwinist framework. Um, you know, why should not uh, you know a country lend on uh, let, uh, you know rest on the the support and help of a stronger neighbor until it can stand alone? Um, this is something that not just the Vietnamese but the Filipinos talk about. And Aguinaldo very much wants to play on the U.S. Um, as that role and invites the U.S. to play the role that France did <laughs> in in the American Revolution. Um, but some of Aguinaldo's closest advisors, even at the time, said this is a mistake, um, and this is this is going to end very badly. Wonderful, Nicole. I can't thank you enough for sharing um, all of the further insights. If if you haven't, if any if any listeners haven't bought this book, it is well worth doing. It is not. It is something that's going to take you some time because I think, as I said, what you do is you deconstruct everything and put it all back together again. But it is such an important read. For, for us scholars of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, because it retrains our focus in a way that we're not often used to. And that, that's essential for us to, to grapple with the past in a more meaningful and I think enlightened way. So I can't thank you enough for, for sharing your time. Thank you so much. It's been such a wonderful opportunity. You've been extremely generous to me and to my book. And I really look forward to digging through the entire series of this podcast. Well, that's all we have time for. Thanks for listening. You can follow the Gilded Age and Progressive Era on Twitter or on my website, michaelpatrickcullinane.com. Please consider subscribing or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen because it really makes a big difference and helps direct others to the show. I hope you'll join me again for the next episode. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.